Well, good morning to everybody. Uh, let's begin with prayer, shall we? Lord, we're grateful that you have brought us together again this morning, and I pray that you will open our minds and our hearts to behold wonderful things out of your law. And as we press on in this series that we've enjoyed together, I pray that you will help us to have even a broad sense, Lord, of what your prophets were about and, and who they were. I pray that you'll give wisdom to the one teaching, and I pray that you'll give clarity, Lord, for those who are hearing. And we ask these things in your Son's name. Amen. Well, good morning. I guess we're at number five of six. Um, I kind of thought there was seven, Um, but I'll get that clarified. But if it's six, then next week will be it, and no worries, we'll cover the whole of the writings, um, you know, next week. Was, that'll be um, Psalms all the way to Chronicles. That should be. Um, so, uh, to kind of give you a sense of where we are uh, from a scope standpoint, we started um, several weeks back trying to give a sense of the way in which the Hebrew canon, and none of our English Bibles are set up according to the Hebrew canon. Um, I, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of interesting reasons why that's not the case. Um, I, I, I would actually love to make an argument at some point to do that, but I don't, I don't think any publisher will ever touch it. Uh, but nevertheless, from the Hebrew canon standpoint, the, the Bible, the Old Testament, is set up according to law, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and then the writings, which is the Ketuvim. And in the writings, you have books like Psalms and Proverbs, what we refer to as the wisdom literature, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon is in the writings. Ruth is in the writings. Um, Esther is there. Ezra and Nehemiah. And also First and Second Chronicles, which we tend to, in our English Bibles, we associate those with, with First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, but, the, but in the Hebrew canon, Chronicles tends to come as the last book of the, of the writings, which is, I think, of interest from a theological standpoint, um, because Chronicles ends the canon and sets us up for the necessity and the hope for the future coming uh, Davidic king, who in due course we turn into Matthew and all of a sudden they were there. Um, so today what I'd like to do is spend some time in what's referred to as the latter prophets. Last week we did what are called the former prophets, and that is uh, Joshua Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings. Um, and if you remember what we saw there in the former prophets, we saw that in Joshua 24, we had that pinnacle moment, the golden era, one might say, of Israel's history, where they were living according to the law. All of Joshua's, um, all the people who were in leadership with Joshua, when they were in leadership, things were going well. Then we go into the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 6 and following. Judge uh, Joshua died. All of the elders died that were with Joshua, and then a new generation arose, and they did not know the Lord, and they did not follow in His ways. And what you begin to see in the book of Judges, as I understand it at this point, at least, is a kind of downward spiral, and that is this move of sin and judgment and repentance and restoration. Sin, judgment, repentance, restoration, kind of this kind of downward move. Um, but the moment that God would restore His people, the positive moment, was the sending of a judge. 
And these judges were positive figures. We need to view them, I think, positively or as um, anticipations of a coming redemptive figure because they, they were the means by which God brought His salvation and His restoration back to His people again, even with some funny characters like Samson. I mean, my boys love that Samson story. You know, his eyes, his hair gets long and Delilah. And, well, even in his final moment, uh, Samson acts according to his role as a savior of God's people as he pulls down the walls on the, on the bad Philistines. And you, you, you know that story. Um, so that was the Joshua Judge. And then when you get into Samuel, Samuel is about David, no questions asked, and the centrality of the Davidic figure. And then we get into kings with Solomon and his progeny, and then Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the breaking off of the kingdom. The northern kingdom is under the leadership of Jeroboam. The southern kingdom is under the leadership of Rehoboam. And then things are never the same. Um, You move into a season with the northern kingdom, which was the strongest empire um, in that region at the time. It made the southern kingdom look rather paltry, actually, from a geopolitical standpoint. But the northern kingdom uh, never knew one king that walked according to um, the law of the Lord. Never one. And the southern kingdom was a little bit more complex as you had one father who would walk in the ways of the Lord and a son who wouldn't, and then back and forth. And what ends up happening within these prophetic figures, I mean, within the former prophets, Samuel and Kings, is a demonstration, a very painful demonstration, that what God said in Deuteronomy 27 would work itself out in the history of Israel. And what was it that God said in Deuteronomy 27? I have put before you today the opportunity for life. Walk in my way. The burden's not heavy. The yoke is not difficult to bear. What does it mean to walk into my way? It means to be exclusive in your loyalty to me. That's what the covenant formula was all about in the Old Testament. We can reduce it to a very simple formula. I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the covenant relationship. And it's a bona fide relationship, a real live interaction between the God of heaven and earth, Yahweh, and His people. I put before you today the choice for life. Choose life. Walk in that direction. And if you walk in that direction, you will enjoy the benefits of this rich and deep covenant relationship with your very living God. The God who breathed out of the breath of His own nostrils, and you saw the Red Sea split right open before you. That's who I am. I am for you. But the flip side of Deuteronomy 27 was, but if you don't walk in My way, if you do chase after other gods, if you do look at the nations surrounding you and say, we'd we'd rather be like them rather than a holy, set-apart people that witnesses to the reality of our God. If you want to be like that, then there will be cursings that fall on you and on your people. And that's what happens to the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. via the the medium, the providential medium of the Neo-Assyrians. And they were a bad bunch. I mean, they were a tough lot coming through with Sennacherib and Shalmaneser V. And here they come through and they, they destroy the northern kingdom. They make their way down into the southern kingdom, into Judah, and they wreak havoc there as well, ruining the infrastructure of Judah in such a way that they never fully recovered. But they come up to the walls of Jerusalem. Remember this great story with King Hezekiah. And Hezekiah prays, and the Lord sends an angel down to deliver them from Sennacherib and his 100,000 troops. And Sennacherib goes back without having finished the mission of Judah as well. 
So they, they won the day in a way. They, 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 they dodged the bullet of the, Assyrian, uh, of the Assyrian threat. Only to be told, when we come to the book of Isaiah, and we'll talk about Isaiah a little bit this morning, only to be told, remember this scene with, with Hezekiah in Isaiah chapter 39? Hezekiah has an envoy of Babylonians that come to visit him. And here these Babylonians are, and they visit him. And, and, and Hezekiah does something that, that if we've learned anything about God's understanding of the way in which he wants his kings to operate, he does not want them to pull up their shirt sleeve and to flex their muscles. He doesn't want them to do that. Because he wants the nations to know that the king and his power in Israel finds the source of his power and his strength in Yahweh, in God alone. But what does Hezekiah do? And who's a good king? A godly king. He walks in the ways of the Lord. Hezekiah sees these Babylonian visitors and he says, well, let me take you on a tour of the temple and tour the palace. And he gets the keys and he opens up the royal treasury of of the palace and of the temple. And he shows off all of the power and the wealth and the the might of, of Israel, of Judah, to these foreign Babylonians. And God does not like it one bit. Remember what happens? Hezekiah gets struck down with leprosy. Um, he intercedes for himself. He prays. Isaiah intercedes for him. And the leprosy goes away. But then this is what uh, God told Hezekiah. He said, you will not suffer in your day. But your children and your grandchildren, those Babylonians that you showed off to, those self-same Babylonians will carry off those treasures that you showed them in due course. And Hezekiah gets one of those classic um, you know, encouraging responses from an older generation. He says, well, at least it'll be okay in my day. Uh, That's actually what he says. Well, all right. I hate that for my children, my grandchildren, but, you know, know, bring me the wine. And what do we see? We blink, and a hundred years pass after Hezekiah, a hundred plus years, and here come these Babylonians again. And in 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah falls as well. So what you have in this former prophets are not just a review and a rehearsal of Israel's complex and torturous history. It is that. But it's not just that. It's a prophetic word that comes from the Lord. A highly selective and calibrated history to say to the people, this is why this is occurring to you. If you had any questions about why it is that the Assyrians have come down or the Babylonians have come and have done what they have done, if you have any questions about that, be assured that the reason why it is happening is because of the theology of the book of Deuteronomy. I gave you the law on the plains of Moab. Before you went in, I told you, follow my way. Not a heavy way. Not a burdensome way. I mean, I think we sometimes tend to view the law in the Old Testament as as if it was this enormous burden. I mean, we have to give an account somehow for how someone like David, who was a lawbreaker himself, could say things like, your law is sweeter to me than honey. Your statutes are, are good and they are right. Or Psalm 119, that long psalm saying that, go oh, give me your law so that it will, it will give me light into my path and direct my ways. I mean, there's a very positive view of this. The the law, even in the Old Testament, was not a legalistic check off of the list. 
There was built into the system, even in the Old Testament, the means for redemption and reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins. Yom Kippur, every year. So the, there was the, the, the means was there for the forgiveness of sins. The grace of God is not something new that shows up in the New Testament. Oh, oh, this means God's gracious. I didn't know that. No. God is gracious in the Old Testament as well. But what you see within the sort of stubborn history of Israel and Judah is this persistent turning in on the self and going after foreign gods. It's at the heart of it. So when we move from the former prophets and then we move into the latter prophets, we see now these figures that begin to emerge in Israel's midst who come out to remind the people of God who they are, what God's claim is on them, and the real live consequences of not walking in in the ways of, of, of the Lord. So, so who, who are these, these the latter prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, that's a kind of a fun one, um, and the twelve. Hosea all the way to uh, Malachi. And so those twelve little books, at least by the time of Ben Sirah in the second century B.C., were understood as one book, the book of the twelve, so that we can refer to the, 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 the latter prophets as four, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the twelve, even though you recognize there are individual voices within those minor prophets as well. And I, by the way, I have a real uh, man crush on the minor prophets. I think there's, um, there's just so much rich... There's so many rich resources in the Minor Prophets. I think, you know, in my own study of them, I feel like I'm just scratching the surface. They're, they're very, very rich. Um, so what about these, um, these, these prophets who come into our midst? Uh, now, I don't know what you feel about them. Uh, do you read these guys? Um, you know, Ezekiel chapter 1, you got wheels within wheels and chariots of fire and throne rooms with sapphire. And you've got Ezekiel who is married and then his wife dies and he's told not to mourn her. You have Isaiah who's walking around naked. I, mean, I don't know, you know, you wonder, like, I'm not sure that I want to invite these guys over to the neighborhood dinner party. Um, I mean, they're, they're a strange lot. They're a different kind of group. Um, one of the things that I've actually been quite taken by is the recognition that these prophetic figures can be understood as Israelites arrested by God. I'm stealing that terminology from Old Testament theologian Gerhard von Rod. Von Rod says these Old Testament prophets were, were Israelites who were arrested by God. I wanted to read this to you. He says this, So deep is the gulf which separates the prophets from their past. Um, you think about Amos, for example, in Amos chapter 7, verse 14. I was a herdsman. I was a keeper of sheep. And all of a sudden you came to me. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a son of a prophet. But Yahweh took me. That's a great turn of phrase, I think. I was nothing. I was a herdsman. Happily out there with my sheep. Kind of like someone else we know in Exodus chapter 3. Who seemed to just be happy out in the wilderness with his Midianite wife and his Midianite children now uh, keeping sheep of his father-in-law Jethro. And all of a sudden he has a vision. And in this vision, what is it that he sees? He sees the bush that's burning and God is speaking to him. And what happens to, to Moses, who is the paradigmatic prophet? 
Deuteronomy chapter 18. The word is put onto Moses' mouth. A prophet is promised who will come after Moses. Deuteronomy 34. There was no prophet in the land ever like Moses. So he's the paradigmatic prophet. He is the ultimate Israelite who was arrested by God, whose identity was never the same. But Yahweh took me. I was in a normal pattern of life, but Yahweh seized me and set me aside for his particular calling. So Vinrod goes on to say, there was more, this was more than a new profession for the prophets. It was a totally new way of life. It was a new existence. They'd been arrested by God to be a spokesperson for the Lord. Now, there was a lot of scholarly debate and foment, I would say, 50 years ago and before that as well, that surrounded the fact of what's the best way to understand prophetic figures as foretellers, the sort of clairvoyant side of being a prophet, they saw into the future, or as forth-tellers, as preachers. Now, if my own opinion on this is that's a false dichotomy. I don't think we need to be forced into a corner to say, well, I think there are more foretellers than foretellers or vice versa. But I do think it's important for us to recognize that the prophets were not merely tellers of the future, clairvoyants who saw into the future to make claims about the future. They were that, and they could do that, and they did so in ways that were really, really important. But they were primarily, I would say, those who were preaching and reminding the people of God about God's covenant claims on them. They were preachers. They, they, were, they were those who reminded the, the people about, their, about their, fundamental, their fundamental identity. So these preachers, these teachers, these foretellers, these foretellers were those that had been arrested by God, set aside by God to be un- the unique means by which God's Word actually became physically present in the people of God. I don't want to chase this rabbit, but, but, I, but I'll say two things about John Calvin related to this. Number one, Calvin was very good when he emphasized that Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king, that unlike any prophet before him, Jesus was both a prophetic figure and the very Word of God itself. That's a unique thing about Jesus. Whereas the prophets became the conduit, the means by which God's word was communicated to them, but they were not identified with the word of God. They were servants of the word of God. But Jesus was actually the prophetic figure who both spoke the word of God and was that very self-same word. That's quite, that's unique to the person and work of Jesus. Another thing I want to say about Calvin from an illustrative standpoint, this, these Israelites who are arrested by God. You know, I, 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 I Calvin is an interesting figure, isn't he? And for those of you who have spent any time with him or, or have any interest in him, complicated guy. Um, you know, I think Calvin probably had a hard time um, admitting when he was wrong. Um, he was right a lot um, and, and tended to know that he was right. Um, e- even when uh, Calvin would admit his moral failings, I failed you in this way or I flew off the handle, um, I wasn't very gracious here, please forgive me, rarely do we find Calvin actually saying, oh, and the point that I was making, I was wrong. Right? I mean, it wasn't, it's like, the way I responded was wrong, um, but I was right. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of that in Calvin. Calvin, um, which, you know, could make for an interesting marital dynamic. I'd love to see how that kind of worked, but we don't, we don't know. Um, but Calvin really wanted to be a scholar all by himself in a library writing. That's what he wanted to do. That was his dream. 
And yet, he had this man named William Farrell who was a prophetic figure in his own life who told him, Geneva needs a pastor. You're to be that man. And if you don't, the judgment of God is going to fall on you. And Calvin, this very, very smart and intelligent person and deeply reflective theologian, believed him. And he said, well, okay, well, then I guess I better do that. And what happens is actually Calvin is himself a kind of illustration of what it means to be a prophet, someone who's arrested to do something that completely alters their fundamental identity for the rest of their lives. That's what these prophetic figures were. They were Israelites who were arrested by God. Um, what What was it that they were primarily saying? I would say two things, and this is dangerously reductionistic. But I think there are two aspects that are at the core of the prophetic word. And we can see this all the way from Isaiah to Malachi to the end. There's a favorite word that we see in Jeremiah and that we also see in the minor prophets that tends to show up again and again. And it's the Hebrew word shuv, return, return. That is a a major claim that is coming from the mouth of the prophets. God has a claim on you. His fundamental predisposition toward you is one of grace, one of love. You are His wife. That's one of His favorite images that He uses. You are His wife. Return to Him. Return to Him. And if you return to Him, He will be gracious to you. Return. Which makes a book like Jonah so fascinating. Because the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom were not returning. But we actually see an episode where the Ninevites, the very enemy of the people of God, they are doing the returning. From the very king of the Assyrians' lips there in Nineveh, he says, and by the way, you remember Jonah's sermon, shortest sermon in history, right? Forty days and you're done. That's the sermon. I mean, it's like, Not a lot of preparation had to go into that, I don't think. Forty days and you're done. And then he's out of town. right? That was his sermon. So there was no statement about, if you repent, this will happen. None of that. It was a sermon with unstated qualifications. And what is it that the king of Nineveh does? He constitutes a national fast, which which is a, a, a national embodiment of returning, of repenting. Why? Well, perhaps God will have mercy on us and will relent from what He is about to do. Which, by the way, is the exact prayer that that Moses prays to God on the far side of the golden calf encounter in Exodus 32. The language is strikingly overlapping the one with the other. What is it that God says when He cuts Moses off midstream? He says, go down right now. We're done talking. Your people have built a golden calf. Go down to them. I'm going to destroy them and I'll start over with you and I'll make a great nation. And what is it that that, um, Moses says? He says, remember, you're the one who led them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, you're the one who made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Repent of the calamity that you are considering to do toward this people. Change your mind. Relinquish yourself. That same term is used there when Moses intercedes for God's people. And guess what God does? He, he relents. It's what makes a book like Jonah so startling. Because here you have a Ninevite king who is embodying the very covenantal relationship that God has with His people. If you do return, 
if you do relent, if you do come back to me, if you shuv, then I will meet you with my mercy and my grace. I will, I will change my mind about the calamity that I've set onto you. It's a dynamic relationship between God and between His people. And what happens in this, with Assyria? And Jonah didn't like it one bit. God relented. He did not send the calamity to them. So their covenant emissaries, and one of their primary term, one of their primary messages is return, shoo, to the Lord. The second thing that I would say about these, these prophets that's at the core of their identity and their, and their, and their message is one of theodicy. Um, it's a technical term that means the justification of God, which, which sounds like a strange thing to do. And by the way, it's not a good position to put oneself in, typically. Um, the kind of necessity to justify God and, and God's actions. Um, he, do, he doesn't, he, well, we think about this with Job, right? And we're going to talk about this next week. But you think about this with Job, God, God doesn't like to have to give an account of himself on our own terms. And I, I don't like that. And I'm sure that there are times when you don't like it either. Um, but God doesn't feel any necessity to give Job an ABC of why he, why he has done the things that he has done. But in this covenant relationship with the prophets, God does give a justification of himself. Why are the Neo-Assyrians threatening you the way that they are? Why are the Neo-Babylonians threatening, threatening you, Southern Kingdom, the way that they are? Well, listen to this in Jeremiah chapter 5 which is a repeated frame again and again. This shows up like six times in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 19. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? That's the question of theodicy. Why has God done this? When they ask that question, This is the answer that you shall give to them. As you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve strangers in a land that is not yours. And that shows up again and again and again. And by the way, it's one of the major themes that you have in the book of Hosea all the way through Malachi 2. What is the theodicy question? Why is this happening to us? What is the answer? Because you have forsaken me and you've gone after other gods. Or, or the other image that Jeremiah likes to use is you've hewn out other cisterns. When you had the well of me, you had me. Springs of eternal life that would come from me. But you went and you had to drink the muddy water of the foreign nations instead of coming and, and, and satiating your thirst on, on me. So those are two of the big issues that I think are going on in these prophets. Both the call to return and both an explanation for why these cataclysmic events are happening in in Israel's life. The last thing I want to say to you, and then we'll open up for some questions. Uh, A a big look at the book of of Isaiah. Um, When you think of a book like Isaiah, and, and I've given this illustration so many times, I'm sorry to do it again, but I do love what Augustine said the first time he encountered the book of Isaiah. He's like, I don't even understand what this is about. I mean, my bishop tells me to read this to prepare for my baptism. I started reading it. The first chapter, it makes no sense to me at all. Um, so I figured the whole book must be equally obscure. I mean, I think you can maybe empathize with, with, um, with the Augustine a little bit. The prophets yield their fruits over a long term with a lot of patience. They're, they're hard work. Um, but when you come to a book like Isaiah, 
And you see this massive book of 66 chapters, um, rich in imagery, filled with pathos and passion, um, and deeply reflective on the theological character of our God. When you come there, you see this transition that occurs between Isaiah chapter 6, when God tells Isaiah, you go and you tell this people, you go to this people, and you bring them my word, And this is what my word is going to do to them. It's going to make them blind and it's going to make them deaf. That's a hard word. In other words, now the word that's coming from me through you, Isaiah, is one of judgment. And Isaiah's response was a very understandable one. Well, how long, O Lord, do I have to do this until it's almost all gone down to a tenth of it? That's the call. So the blindness and the deafness that you see there in Isaiah chapter 6 that works itself out in Israel's history is at the core of Isaiah's mission. But listen to this word in Isaiah 35 that gives you a sense of hope about what the coming day would be like when eyes and ears are opened. Say to those who are fearful of heart, be strong, fear not, Isaiah 35 verse 4. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and He will save you. Then, when He comes and saves you, the eyes of the blind shall be opened. Now, back in Isaiah 6, they're being blinded and deafened. But here on the day of salvation, when God shows up again to make good on His covenantal promises to His people, despite their own faithlessness, Despite their own resistant no to God. Despite that. When I come again to save you. When I move toward you in that unilateral way that reveals that yes, even though my wrath is severe, my mercy is greater. Even though the no of my judgment has a real sting to it. Just look at your history of Israel. It has a sting. Even though it has a real sting to it, it is not the final word. It's not a death blow. My yes of grace will triumph over my no of judgment, even though my no of judgment is severe and it's real. And when that happens, when I come and save you again, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, the deaf will be unstopped. And then you move in Isaiah chapter 40 after this little brief interlude with Hezekiah. And what is that famous? You think about Handel's Messiah. Dun, 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 right behind you can hear it. Some baritone singing this. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. It's not this people anymore. It's my people. Which has been enormously helpful for me to make sense of one aspect of Jesus' ministry that has befuddled me for the longest time. I mean, have you ever had these kind of thoughts? They're not very sanctimonious thoughts, but um, the things like, you know, Jesus, I don't understand why you make things so difficult. I mean, it's, you know, it's like, this is hard. Why, why do you do this? He's walking along Luke chapter 14, and a great crowd is following him. And uh, Jesus stops and he turns to them rather dramatically, and he says, if you don't hate my fa- your father and your mother and your brother and your sister and your wives and your children, even your own life, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you can have nothing to do with me. You're like, why'd you have to say that? I mean, yeah, like, look at all the people who are here. I mean, take an offering. I mean, this is, this is great. Um, but, he, but he does that. 
Another thing that Jesus does in, in, in a parable that some argue is the paradigmatic parable. The one of the sower in the, in the soil. And Jesus talks about the sower in the soil. I, I won't go through the time, I won't go through all, but you know this, Luke chapter 8, and some falls on rocky ground, some falls on hard ground, some falls on, but some falls on good ground. And then Jesus yells out, if you have ears to hear, understand what I'm saying. All this makes sense to me from the standpoint of the book of Isaiah. Remember, ears being deafened, eyes being blinded is at the core of the, of the judgment of God. But the opening of the eyes and the opening of the ears is the moment of salvation for God's people. So Jesus gives this parable in a rather opaque way. He speaks in allegories. He speaks in circumlocutions. He's telling the truth in Emily Dickinson's terms, but he's telling it slant. I've got to kind of get at this from an angle. And, uh, and he says, if you have ears to hear, understand what I'm saying. And the disciples, I'm paraphrasing here, but the disciples kind of tug his coat and they're like, okay, we didn't quite get that either, right? <laughs> what, what, what does that mean? And then Jesus says something that I think is so crucial that taps into this theology of Isaiah, of the prophetic ministry of our Lord and of the Old Testament. He said, to you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus, what does he do? He explains the parable to them. What is he doing? He's doing Isaiah 35. He's opening their eyes. He's opening their ears so that the word of the Lord is no longer obscuring their view of the truth, but it is now becoming the means for their own salvation. And Jesus is the one who's explaining it. He's the prophet among their midst. He is the promised hope of Isaiah 35 and Isaiah chapter 40, that when salvation comes, when the day of the Lord arrives in its glory and its beauty and its terror when it happens, here is Jesus opening eyes and opening ears so that people can perceive and understand wonderful things from His law. We don't have time for questions, I'm sorry. But next week we'll try, we'll try to do that, okay? Father, thank You for our time together. Bless my friends here and thank You, Lord, for Your Word. Thank you, Jesus, for opening our eyes and opening our hearts so that we can see. We don't see everything clearly. We don't understand the depth of your ways. But Lord, we do know the truth of the gospel that you've revealed to us in your Son. That word that has made us alive. And we're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.